So be ready for that. Let's have a word of prayer as we look at our, the scripture this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us. Thank you, Lord, that as we learn more of the word of God, we realize and we are humbled by the fact that you are sovereign in every part of our salvation. So that means our salvation in the end and the beginning is secure. But Lord, our salvation does produce something. It produces a holy life. It produces a desire to want to live for you and serve you. It produces fruit because you're working in our life with the power of God. And I pray, Lord, that we would see that in our life and we would desire more of it and more of you as we learn the word of God. And Lord, let us rest in the truth that you're sovereign. And I pray it would give us boldness to live our life for you and then speak for you too. And I thank you, Lord, for all that you have and will do in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, I am looking at uh, Romans chapter 8, at least to initially start today. And I've been talking about the doctrines of grace Uh, I have said already that these doctrines are biblical doctrines and they do matter deeply uh, in our lives because it does affect everything that we believe. Uh, And these five great points are known as being Calvinistic. And of course, it is my uh, prayer that people would come to understand and know these five points because they are points that do radiate the cross and help us to understand more of what happened there when Jesus died on that cross. And it gives us a greater appreciation, a greater love for him, and a greater desire to live for him. Of course, I am speaking of the the doctrines of grace, also called Calvinism. Um, I have already covered total depravity, uh, and another one that equals that is radical corruption. They're both the same. And then unconditional election, Uh, the U, unconditional election, and then limited atonement I covered in three messages or particular redemption. And this morning, I'm going to look at irresistible grace or another way uh, theologians have designated as effectual calling. Now, when considering irresistible grace, there is something that needs our attention, and that is the nature of the sovereignty of God. In other words, is God active and goes after people or is he passive like a concerned bystander? Which is he? The Arminians say that man is in control and therefore can accept and reject God's offer of salvation. God is viewed as waiting and hoping that people will come to believe. The Calvinistic side says God is sovereign and actively pursues the elect and will inevitably bring them to salvation. God's children will necessarily be found by him. Now, one of my professors uh, taking a course, Eric Alexander, actually he was a pastor in England, called this fourth point prevailing grace, that God prevails over everything, just like it says in Matthew, and I say unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell 
shall not prevail against it. See, the church is going to be uh, attacked, of course, and it has been, and it will be on many levels. But those attacks will not prevail. The church will prevail because God is sovereign over his church and his plan will be carried out. Now, as we continue, I have to ask another question when I come to this particular point. How does God gather his children? God surely does gather his children. But how does he do it? Well, if you notice in Romans chapter 8, in verse number 29 and 30, which are very significant passages of scriptures in this epistle of Romans, he says in verse number 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And then notice verse 30 of Romans chapter 8, and these whom he predestined, he also called. And these, of course, he also, excuse me, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. So in that passage, that becomes a key scripture to show us that, of course, what God is doing in his whole plan of salvation. And remembers Romans 8, verse 29 and 30, we see the rich fullness of the completeness of God's work toward the believer. Of course, this can be illustrated by what is called the golden chain of God's full and complete work towards the believer. All he foreknew, he predestines. All he predestined, he called. And that's the word we're looking at this morning, called. And all, of course, he called, he justified. And all he justified, he glorified. Now, this is an unbroken chain of God's plan of salvation. It cannot be broken. This is God's plan. And so, if you notice in Romans, he does say this in verse number 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's a question. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? See, in the end, nothing will be able to uh, separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. See, what he did on the cross, he did completely from the beginning to the end. So when somebody really becomes a believer, they are secure in God's plan of salvation. So for us, the operative word in verse number 30 is called. Why? Because the text says... These whom he called, he justified. So all who are called are justified by God. So how are we to understand this word call? Well, there are two designations, really, that we we can consider when we think of the word call. The first, there is an outward call of the gospel. This outward call is 
very significant because while heard by the ears can be rejected many times if you just look at your own Christian life. You may have been witness to with the gospel several times. Matter of fact, I don't know anybody who was witnessed to just once. People were witnessed to several times, sometimes many times before they actually became a believer, a genuine believer, and started to bear fruit because of the new life that God gave them in Christ Jesus. Of course, Matthew tells us that, listen, in the wedding feast that many are called, but few are chosen. So the call is going to go out to many. All who hear are invited. And this call is ineffective by itself. But because all men are totally depraved and hate God, they actually resist this call. And they resist the work of the Holy Spirit. So we see that God invites people all the time by the preaching of the gospel. And yet, that first initial or several initial invitations of the gospel that is given to a person, they may not accept any of them. They they may reject every single one of them. And by our experience, we all know that not everyone who received the call of the gospel were justified because not all believe the gospel when they hear it. Now, why don't people come to the gospel when they hear it? It is the good news, is it not? Why would they not receive the good news? That's a good question, isn't it? It's a question that we we really do need to answer. So to answer some of that, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, and if you look down to verse number 51, the first reason why people do not believe the gospel in Acts chapter 7, verse 51, is because they are hard of heart. They are, it says here in 51, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. So the first thing is that, you know, actually this word stiff-necked is is only used 1% in the New Testament. And it's actually used in a very particular way. It's, 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 it's in a evocative way. Uh, sense in which uh, the writer wants to express the statement of emotion and wants to at the same time be very emphatic. You can simply translate it, you stubborn, obstinate, rebellious, disobedient people. That's why people don't believe the gospels because they are stiff-necked. They are stubborn. They are filled with pride. All right, and then another word he's using, of course, his audience is Jews here. He says something very particular to the Jews in verse 51. He says that you are not only stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, but in ears 
always resisting the Holy Spirit. So right there, there's that word that these uncircumcised of heart, now, of course, no label could have been more exasperating to these Pharisees, to these Jewish leaders, than to refer to them as uncircumcised in heart. These Jews bore on their flesh the sign of the covenant that would be physical circumcision connected to the of course, the covenant of Abraham, and so that they were considering themselves God's people and in the kingdom. Right here, they're being called people who are uncircumcised, meaning that you're not part of the kingdom of God. You're actually outside the kingdom of God. Yet, of course, they were disobedient to the part of law which demanded a response, actually a responsive heart to God's fuller revelation, and that revelation would be ultimately that Jesus Christ would be the Messiah. He would be the one who dies in the place of sinners, all all those who would believe in him. And so they didn't believe that. That's what they were hard of heart about. And then, of course, in verse 51, people don't believe because they're hard of hearing. It says, ears always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. This is not a new problem. This is a problem that is inherent in the depravity of man. They want to resist. It's an old word that means to fall against or to rush against. They want to resist like a, a boxer wants to resist the punches of another boxer. They want to go against it. They want to push back on it. That's what they want to do. They don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. All right, matter of fact, that's sometimes the response of our, our, our neighbors, our co- co-workers, our relatives. All right, I don't want to hear it. And if you've told them before and you walk in the room, they walk out the other side of the room because they don't want you to tell them that they're under God's judgment and that they need to turn and repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ. So see, it's there. It's, it's, it's the, one of the reasons, of course, why they don't believe the resistance is not just against, in this passage of Scripture, Stephen. It is against God himself. Anytime the gospel goes out, it's not about the person giving the gospel that a person is resisting. It is who's behind the gospel. It is the person of the gospel that people are resisting. They are, they are resisting here the Holy Spirit, all right? And the Holy Spirit, remember, is the necessary condition for everybody who's going to believe. Without the Holy Spirit, no one, no one could believe, no one. So the Spirit of God's job is to bring people to salvation. So they are resisting, listening to the Word of God And of course, behind the word of God is the power of the spirit of God. And they are now resisting God. Now, it it was not because they had slow comprehension. And it's not because they had an inability not to comprehend all that was being said. But the prophet Jeremiah, I think, was right when he diagnosed the people's spiritual problem when he wrote in Jeremiah 6.10, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear. And then he says, Behold, their ears are closed and cannot listen. I guess they had spiritual ADD, right? Spiritual attention deficit disorder. 
And he says to them, behold, the word of the Lord has come, become a reproach to them, and they have no delight in it. So there's a third reason, and of course the major reason, why people will not come and believe the gospel. And of course, that comes right out of of Ephesians chapter 2. You know the passage. People don't believe the gospel because they are spiritually dead. All right? What does it say in Ephesians 2, 1? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So there is no better word to describe man fallen in a depraved condition than this right here, that they are dead. Remember, this goes back to the first point of Calvinism. The first point of the doctrines of grace is total depravity, radical corruption, that from the fall, men fell so far that they were rendered spiritually dead, unable to respond to the call of the gospel. And so just as a person physically dead does not respond to physical stimuli so a person spiritually dead is unable to respond to spiritual things corpse does not hear conversation going on in the funeral parlor a corpse doesn't have any appetite for food or drink feels no pain is dead so just with the inner man of an unsaved, unregenerate person, his spiritual faculties are not functioning. And they cannot function until God gives him or her life. They cannot. So ultimately, dead means to be ignorant of God. People don't know God. Even in the Gospel of John, in chapter 17, verse 3, it puts it like this. This is eternal life, that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So that means this, that not to know God, in a biblical sense, is death. Life that is non-Christian is a living death. People are walking around, they're alive. They're doing things, they're involved with things, but spiritually, they are dead. They are walking spiritual corpses. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, there's two words that support this deadness, and it's the word trespasses and sin. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And remember, the essence of sin is rebellion against God, and the rep... rep, the rep Uh, Actually, the repetition of these two words is for the purpose of being more emphatic about the condition of deadness. Paul speaks of sin as a power that holds humanity under its sway and leads them and keeps them in death. And the two word he uses is the word uh, trespasses. It really literally means to slip and fall. If any remembered, as David was mentioning this morning, the great message of Jonathan Edwards that's probably related to his name more than anything else, the sinners in the hands of an angry God. He actually used Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35 to preach on this very thing. And this is what he says, vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. 
For the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. See, you can't walk without slipping and falling spiritually. You keep falling away from what is true. You keep falling away from the upright path. And then he uses the word that we all use, and that's the word sin, but he uses it in a different word uh, way there. It mean, it's a different, actually, Greek word, and it means it's a shooting word. It literally leads to miss, to miss. A man shoots his arrow at the target, and the, and the arrow misses it. And this is the word he uses, harmatia. Sin is really a failure to hit the target of God's righteous standard. So, see, we commonly... Get the wrong idea about sin. And we would readily agree that robbery or murder or being a gangster or being an adulterer or drugger, drunkard are, are all related to sins. But see, since we are respectable citizens, in our heart of hearts, we, we think that sin has not, has not very much to do with us. But this word right here brings us face to face with sin in that it is a failure to be what we ought to be and could be. We miss the mark all the time. And since the day sin entered into the world, every, everyone descended from Adam has been born sinful, including you and I. And sin, of course, caused problems of guilt And the crooked twist of sin entered into the fabric of human existence and it's everywhere in the world wherever you go. Man has taken what God created good and twisted it into something evil. It was J.R. Packer who rightly said, sin is not something that happens to us because of our surrounding or our social settings. It is something we are. All humans are born sinners and will sin no matter what surroundings or social settings they find themselves. They will sin because they are sinners. So when human sin is considered, it must be considered in this way, that we are missing the mark of God's righteous standard. At any time, of course, we're hitting something else, and that it's namely unrighteousness. And that's why in the Old Testament and then the New Testament, words include words like rebellion and wickedness and selfishness and disobedience and lawlessness when referring to the sin of man. So sin is a violation of a set standard and a violation of the one who set the standard. That's God himself. That's where the rebellion is against God. So you and I came drastically short of that standard every time, all the time. It is not that all humans are as bad as they could be, but that all humans have the potential of the worst of sin. Consequently, my sin and your sin dominated our lives and put us up against God. That's where God's wrath and judgment come in. I'm responsible for every word I ever spoke, every act I ever did every thought that passed through my mind, I'm responsible for it all before God. So remember, because of man's fall into sin, people are spiritually dead. Unregenerate people can no more choose Christ 
or spiritual truth than a rotting corpse can play football or debate, debate philosophy. There's no middle ground between being alive and being dead. Unregenerate people are not just sick. They're not just handicapped. They're not just impaired. They are dead. So, one person writing on regeneration and conversion wrote, you may use all human persuasion possible, but you cannot give spiritual life where death reigns. God alone, by a creative act, can bring life out of death. Spiritual arguments to an unregenerate person are only warm clothes on a corpse. So, there is the outward call, and we, we must give the outward call to everyone. We, we don't know who God has chosen not chosen. We don't know who are, God, who are God's sheep, right? We don't know that. So, our job is to give the gospel broadly, generally, to everyone. But, there is a second distinction in this word call in Romans chapter 8. And it's that there is an outward call, but there is an inward call. And there's where the ir- irresistible grace comes in. And it usually takes place when an outward call is being made. And that means that we're, God, by the Holy Spirit, calls his people to himself effectually by actually working a miracle in their hearts, bringing them from spiritual death to life. That the Holy Spirit transforms the heart, the mind, and the will. And I believe that we can understand from this passage in Romans 8.30, back where I first started, it's referring to an inward call here. Where the text speaks of a call that always results in justification it always does and so out of death god brings a person into life the john 3 verse 3 passage jesus answered and said to nicodemus truly i say to you unless one is born again you can't see the kingdom of god you can't enter the kingdom of god you have to be born again you have to have new life and then john 3 6 that which is born of the flesh is flesh But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. See, so the Holy Spirit becomes the necessary condition to bring someone from a a state of spiritual deadness to a state of spiritual life. John 6, verse 63, again, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. And I love that passage of Scripture right smack in the middle of the first chapter of 1 John. It always baffled me in the beginning when I was a new believer, but now I understand quite, at least more clearly. We're in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, but as many as received him, right? Remember that one? To him he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name who were not born of blood or of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of the will of God. So see, if someone's going to be born again, 
It must be, they must be born again by the will of God. And the Spirit of God is going to be the one that brings life. And the great illustration that's been used, of course, a hundred times, is that of Lazarus. You know that passage in John 11 where Jesus called Lazarus from the dead. He was dead four days. It gives us a good mental picture, though. When Lazarus was in the tomb, Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come forth. Now, that was a call, wasn't it? And as we know, it was an effectual call. It awakened Lazarus from physical death. Jesus didn't merely invite Lazarus out from the grave or suggest the benefits of doing so. He didn't wait for Lazarus' decision on the matter before anything proceeded. No, it was gracious in the extreme for Jesus to call Lazarus from the dead. It was entirely an act of divine mercy as well as divine power. So powerful was this call, in fact, there was no way Lazarus could not be raised. If Jesus had not specifically named Lazarus, perhaps all the tombs would have come forth with Lazarus. Therefore, the outward general call to salvation is made to everyone who hears the gospel. The Holy Spirit of God then extends to the elect the special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. So the external call, which is made to all without distinction, can be and often is rejected. Whereas the inward call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. It always does. In fact, it is, we witness, what we do is we witness there the power of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5, this power has been at work toward believers in several ways. Where it says in, the first one is to make them alive. Ephesians 2 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, what does it say? It says, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, it is a gracious gift of God that we've been saved. The very fact that you and I are believers at all is solely because of the demonstration of God's mighty power. Many things, many, 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 many things had to be overcome and conquered by the strength and power of God in order for you and me to become believers. The Lord had to overcome our flesh. He had to overcome the world system against us. He had to overcome the blindness of Satan to keep us from the gospel. We could have never overcome those things. Never overcome those things. So believers, once they're believers, they have now the power of God working in them. If 
it were not for the power of God working in believers, they would not have a desire for the word of God. They would not have a desire to pray. They would not have a desire to put off sin and then put on righteousness. They would not have a strong desire to fight the spiritual battle against the flesh, the world, and Satan until we get home and be with the Lord. They would have no desire for that. They would have no strength for that. They would have no power for that. And that's why a lot of people who say they believe and never bear any fruit, where is the power to bear fruit? Where is the change in your life? Where is the desire to love God in your life? Paul said to the Philippians, for it is God who is at work in you. If God is at work in us, there must be a change. And he does it both to will and to work his good pleasure. So if somebody is really a believer, there definitely will be a change in every part of who they are. And one major part is going to be their affections. It's going to be their desire and how they want to live their life. It's going to be the goal of where they want to end up. So by means of this special effectual call, the Spirit irresistibly draws the sinner to Christ. He is not limited in his work of applying salvation by the will of man, nor is he dependent upon man's cooperation for success. That the Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent to come freely and willingly to Christ. Hmm. George Bishop, in his book on the doctrines of grace, gave a succinct, succinct bottom line on this point. He wrote, and I quote, man can no more turn to God than a, the dead can sit up in their coffins. He can no more originate a right desire than he can create a universe. God and God the Holy Spirit alone by sovereignty and special interference calls dead sinners to life and creates within them the desire in their hearts. See, God is sovereign over salvation. And the idea that Christ can or will save only those who of their own free will are willing to accept his complete accept him completely really contradicts really what the Bible says about the effectual, the effect of total depravity upon the human race. I mean, if we just look at it, all, all are dead spiritually, all hate the truth, all hate Christ, all dwell in darkness, all have a heart of stone, all are helpless, no one can repent, all our slaves are Satan of Satan, uh, and nobody can comprehend divine truth. So how in the world are you going to get out of that without God working? How are you going to do it? No one could do it. See, this notion today got to get out of the church that it's the will of man who decides salvation. And if it is the will of man that decides, then man's sovereign. If God's will is irresistible, then God is sovereign. And so I say this that God is sovereign. 
He is sovereign. So will the elect come to Christ? Yes, they will come. Paul even goes on further in Romans in chapter 9. He says, who will say to me then, why does he stand, find fault? Who resists his will? See, God opens the mind to understand. God changes the affections from hatred to love. God changes the will from resistance to being responsive. So that means that the elect are not born again because they believe. Rather, they believe because they're born again. The new birth is a sovereign gift And so is faith a gift. Repentance is also a free gift that is sovereignly bestowed upon people. Why? Because the elect now have faith that God justifies them and then they are saved. Some say that a better way to talk about this point is not to say that you come because of irresistible grace, but that people come because we have an irresistible God. And that may, both may be true there. But let me just back up for a moment, and I want you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. Again, that's where I started out um, a couple weeks ago looking at that passage. But I want to I go back there and backtrack just a wee bit because I want to ask the question again, how do people come to Christ? And let me read verse number 44, and I'll be looking possibly at other passages within the context there, verse 24 to 48. But verse number 44, which I'm heading for, it says, No one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, remember when I was back there in that passage of Scripture, there were three important words that come out of that passage. The first one is, is the word, no one can come to me. All right? Now, this is, of course, a negative absolute word, and the word can really refers to ability. In other words, no one has the ability to come. All right? And then secondly, the word unless. All right? Notice the term unless is really an... Uh, it's a word that means... Must, there, actually, there must be a prerequisite or, or, again, a necessary condition that must be met before anyone has the ability to come, right? And sometimes uh, something has, in other words, something has to happen before anyone can come to Christ. It is saying none of us has the natural ability to come to Christ unless the necessary condition is met. Unless God does something, unless the Father gives it to them. All right? And of course, it leads me to this word, the word draws. Now, here is another term in this verse uh, that means, of course, it's been translated to mean drag, pull, or draw. And I, when I was there, I would mention that uh, Kittle's Dictionary of Theology said, uh, good definition of that word is to compel by irresistible force. Great definition. So some may say, how does the Father draw people? A very quick answer and a true answer would be God draws men by the preaching of the gospel. 
So we must say that the preaching of the gospel is the instrument of drawing people to Christ. However, however, we must be reminded again of the context in which this passage sits. That Jesus was addressing the people of Capernaum. He had already plainly preached to them the gospel. He explained to them the woes of the law. He, in fact, performed many works and miracles amongst the people while he was giving them the word of God. And they were following Jesus, but they were not believing in him. Now look what it says in verse number 24 of John chapter 6. See, Jesus reveals the real motive of these people. And he says, so then, verse 24, John 6, 24, Gospel of John. So then, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into a small boat and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. So there's their motive. They were following Jesus to get something, right? And so in verse number, what I'm saying here is that the miracles, the preaching of the word of God by Jesus was resisted by the people. It was resisted by them. Look at verse number 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of the life. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you, what? Do not believe. So Jesus is quickly giving them an assessment of their spiritual condition after he performed works of miracles, after he fed them in that miracle, after he gave them the word of God, after he already told them he was the bread of life, and yet they're not believing. Why not? Why aren't they believing? Everything seems to be there in place to believe. Well, look at verse 41. It says, therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he says, I am the bread of bread that came down out of heaven. In verse 42, they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, do not grumble among yourselves. And here's the passage. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Do you see what I'm saying is this, that you can, the gospel, gospel can be, go out there. People can even experience miracles of God and yet not believe. And why don't they believe? Is because there's a necessary condition that must be met by God. The Father must draw them to believe. So that means there's something more of this drawing of the Heavenly Father. 
Christ never compelled any person to come to him against their will. So this word draw doesn't necessarily mean to drag somebody kicking and screaming, I don't want to go. No, it's not what it means. If a person is unwilling to be saved, Christ does not save him against his will. The Holy Spirit draws the sinner by making him willing. When the Holy Spirit works, his, he influences the heart so the person is glad to obey the voice of the one that he despised initially. So we, how does this all work? I don't know how it works. All that I know is that the Holy Spirit of God is working. However, there are some things that are visibly apparent when the, God does draw somebody and brings them to an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and brings them, gives them repentance and faith and makes them alive. There is something apparent in their life. And I think there are several things. When the Holy Spirit first enters into a person's heart, he shows that sinner who already has a good opinion of themselves and feel that they can walk into heaven freely because they have assessed themselves as a pretty good person, mostly not worthy of God's wrath. So the Holy Spirit of God exposes their cancer. He uncovers to that person the blackness, the defilement, the corruption, the rebellion that has been there in their heart from the beginning. And he does it until that person says to themselves, I never thought I was like that. I never saw that kind of wickedness in my heart. My sins against God are too great and too many to count. The Holy Spirit of God does that. And then the Holy Spirit of God reveals to that person that their debt is too great to work off by any kind of good works or self-righteousness. There's nothing you can do to make yourself right with God. And that person's heart begins to sink in despair, thinking ultimately they are hopeless. Nothing can save me. They conclude, how can I be saved when I see this? I'm under God's judgment. I'm in trouble. The Spirit of God does that, doesn't he? And he does it a very good job of it. When he puts your sin right in front of you, and you begin to see the vileness and ugliness of your own inner heart, it's the Spirit of God who does that. See, He's drawing you. You must see your sin first before you would ever want Christ. You must see that. He must show you that part of your heart. Then, He doesn't leave us there. When He's drawing, the Holy Spirit comes and shows the sinner the cross of Christ. He gives them ears to ear and eyes to see to look at the man who died to save sinners. And he finds out that man 
was Jesus Christ. That man was the Messiah. That man was prophesied before the foundation of the world and written in the word of God that he would come as a suffering servant. And so that person sees who he is. And as they feel themselves a sinner, they also begin to see that he died to save them. They're lost. He's the one who can find them. He seeks and saves that which was lost. See, so God is seeking his children. He is seeking his sheep. He is going after them. He is pursuing them. He is active in the matter of salvation. And so what the Holy Spirit of God then does is enable the heart to believe and to come to Christ for salvation and eternal life. And when the person comes to Christ by the Holy Spirit of God's sweet drawing, the sinner comes to Christ with full consent without realizing a secret influence has ever been exercised over their heart. That's what he does. Now, we find out about that later on, right? When we start studying the Word of God and we say, wow, this is what God has done. You know, I thought I was doing everything back then. I thought it was all about me, but I find that it's not about me at all. God was working. He was working in my life. He was drawing me, and he could be drawing a person for years. When everything's going good and right in your life, you think, I don't, I don't want to hear about it. I'm, I'm doing great. God's blessing me. But it's when the trouble comes, when things start falling apart, when, the, when there's no more hope in the world, when, when you know, my, my family, something comes in and then God begins to draw you to ask some of the questions you weren't asking before. And then to ask the questions of what are, where am I going to go when I die? What if all this stuff is true? What if there is a judgment of God? And they begin to get fearful. That fear is good. And that's what the Spirit of God does. He brings them to that place. And I'd say this, that if the drawing influence of the Holy Spirit had not been exercised, there never would have been or never will be any person either who can or will come to Christ. See, that's is irresistible grace, and I am glad it's in the Word of God. Because in irresistible grace, you really get a handle on the love of God pursuing those who hate Him. God's pursuing an ungodly, unrighteous person and bringing them to himself. Right? That's why we say all the time, I don't deserve salvation. I would never have deserved salvation. In a million trillion years, we would never have deserved salvation. It's all of God's good grace to us. And it's all about his his power that cannot be ultimately at that time resisted as he's bringing his sheep to himself, but not without a knowledge of their sin, but not without a knowledge of what Christ has done. They must have that. So, yes, irresistible grace, effectual calling is scriptural. No one can or will come to Christ without the drawing influence of the Holy Spirit of God. Yes, 
All God foreknew, He predestined. All God predestined, He called. All God called, He justified. And all God justified, He glorified. So, in other words, if you are a true believer, if God has been working in your life and you are starting to bear fruit, which we're going to see in my next message, that's going to deal with, of course, that last point is going to be, deal with the perseverance of the saints. It doesn't mean I'm just going to, I'm going to pervert, persevere to the end and nothing's going to happen in my life. It means that when you become a believer, oh, tons of things are going on in your, your spiritual life. And you cannot get away from it. You will grow in Christ if you're a believer. Amen? So if you're not a believer, how about... Is, is the Lord drawing you? Is the Lord bringing you? Has the Lord shown you your heart? Do you fear his judgment? It's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. There is a judgment. Come to Christ. If you are a believer... Take these doctrines seriously and take them deep to your heart because they change the way you live. They change the way you view the world. And I'll tell you what they're going to change, how you view death. It's going to change all that. See, the only way to live this life is to live it for Christ. Whatever you're doing, I don't say change your job and become a missionary or change your job and become a pastor. I'm, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, listen, where God called you, live for him. Be the light, be the testimony, be the influence right where you're at because you're going to win people and influence people I cannot do. I can't influence, but you can, right? And you may see someone being drawn to Christ. It's amazing to see that process. It is amazing to see it. But when somebody, when God breaks, breaks all the shackles and all the arguments and all the doubts and someone actually comes, it's an amazing thing. And then to see them grow and then to see them begin to understand these things and then tell them and teach them to others is, is just an amazing thing. And you know that only God could do that. So all God's people said what? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for today, for your people. Lord, for your goodness to us. Lord, it is your will to bring your children to yourself by an irresistible call. And I thank you, Lord, that you, you have done this. Now, because you've done it, Lord, continue to allow us to bring the gospel to the general audience so that you may use the gospel to convict of sin of righteousness and of judgment, and that the Spirit of God can do His drawing work in bringing someone to Christ. And I pray, Lord, that You would allow us to be around to see others call upon You in repentance and faith as You give them life and as they desire now to live for You. And I pray You would rescue them from the condemnation of their sin and Your judgment. And I pray, Lord, You give them a joy and a peace in their heart that only You can give as someone comes to know you as their own Lord and Savior. We give you the praise, Lord. Continue to do your work amongst us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together.